At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. Yes, Father, you have spoken, and we know that it is so. By his stripes, we are healed. By the wounds of Jesus, we are healed. Help us believe with all our might and conviction that it's only in Jesus' wounds that we are healed. His wounds for us were as real as is our healing. Father, please make this true for us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. The Word of God says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Perch me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Last year when we were planning this series in the Psalms, we didn't realize how timely it'd be for a world that's adrift in the sea of the coronavirus. We just wanted to give some theological foundations for two of the most important activities that we do as followers of Jesus, the Sunday gathering and our live groups. Some of the things that we do frequently and that are of great importance often go unexamined. Other things that we do infrequently, we actually examine quite a bit. For example, if you're going to go to the doctor, you need to have an answer for the question, why, right? Why are you there? The nurse is going to ask you, and you don't just say, oh, I don't know, nurse, I just wanted to drop by. 
Now, we usually know the reason, right? A headache, a growth, a broken bone. It's something that we do infrequently, not frequently, and therefore, the why is on the tip of our tongues. But other things, in fact, the most important things that we do habitually, we often don't examine. Say for my family, we have dinner together as a family every day. That's, a, that's an important priority for us. And, but it goes unassumed, right? The, um, the importance is often just assumed until maybe one of the children asks, hey, why do we always have dinner together? You know, how come we don't just have it in our own rooms or in our own times? No, we do it together. Why is that? That's what we're doing with this series. We're taking two of our most important things, two of the most important things you'll do as a Christian. The Sunday gathering, this right here, and the gathering in smaller groups for the purpose of worship and all the things that we practice together. And we're simply asking, why do we do these things? And the answer comes to us from the book of Psalms. And I say it's a timely series because for the very first time in any of our lifetimes, whether you're 90 years old or 10 years old, we can only gather on Sundays and as groups with difficulty. Many people are not even in this room because they don't feel safe yet to come back or because we can't have kids ministry yet safely and therefore it presents many practical issues for these families. But just because, and I know that God can keep them, that he can keep them in, their lo- in his love, he can keep them surrounded by his grace. But here's the thing, just because we can't be together, all of us right now, it doesn't mean that we can't strengthen our resolve to cherish this Sunday gathering so that we come back stronger than ever whenever God lives this present danger. When I am away from Anna for a week or two on travel, it makes me more eager to come back to her, not less. Imagine if I was away and I was like, oh, I don't miss her that much. I guess I don't really need her that much. Who would have thought? That would reveal some serious problems with my marriage and my understanding of marriage. And the same kind of problems exist for people who might right now be saying, you know, online church is just fine for me. I hope that people are utterly dissatisfied with online church services. However great the production, I hope that people are counting the days until God lifts this viral oppression from us. I hope that people are prioritizing worship at home while at the same time lamenting that they can't be here. And so why do we gather? Why do we assemble together? And the answer is that God is gathering his people, his church from every corner of the world and we come to delight in God's word. That was the sermon two weeks ago. We come to everything that we do in this service right here is centered on the word of God. Our singing, our prayers, our preaching, our celebration of the Lord's Supper and baptism. All of these things we do centered upon the word of God. We come to bow under his word. In Sidian Antioch, in the first century, when Paul takes the gospel there and the Gentiles realize that Jesus, the Messiah, is for them also and not just for the Jews, Acts 13 tells us they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And that's why we gather. We gather to rejoice in God's word and to glorify God's word. That was two weeks ago. But we also gather to confess our sins. And that's today's topic. And I'm so glad that we're doing this teaching because confession is something easily misunderstood and rarely practiced. 
So we're going to get into it. Now, before we begin walking through the verses, I want you to look at the superscription of the psalm. The superscription is the description of the psalm that comes right above verse 1, usually in caps, uh, kind of small letters. And here's what it says. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Some of the psalms give us a historical title referring to an event in David's life. The event right here is his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, her um, husband. There are some events after which our lives are never the same. That's where David is in this moment. And so how will he recover? How will he be restored? How will David's life not be defined for the rest of his days by his wrongdoing? Do you ever wonder that about your life? You do something, something happens to you that is just devastating, whether you did it or it was done to you. How will you not be defined by this? And the answer comes to us in Psalm 51, a psalm so desperate, so transparent, so saturated with the language of the tax collector in Luke 18 that we learned from three weeks ago, remember? We learned from the tax collector who prayed, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. That tax collector's prayer is the Twitter version of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is an expanded version of his prayer. Unless we think, well, I've never sinned as horrifically as David did, let's not forget that small sin that, that goes unconfessed never stays small. Because either the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, has conquered the power of sin in our lives or sin is our ever-growing, grotesque, violent master. It's one or the other. And our practice of confession or lack thereof will show which one is true for us. So here we go. Know and own your sin. If there are any children here, we have some sheets under the seats. You can write down uh, some of the missing words. Know and own your sin. Look at verse 1 with me one more time. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. My transgressions, my iniquities, my sin. David has the vocabulary of sin, something that we lack today. Our world knows that there is evil everywhere. It's just that we won't call it evil and we won't speak of sin. We will attribute wrongdoing to ideologies, to psychology, to sociology. We'll speak of forces, of systemic forces of oppression. But we won't lay the root of those forces in the human heart, in the sinful human heart. Now you may say, well, what's in a name? Call it sin, don't call it sin. What's the matter? You know, what's the difference? It's all the same. But is it? The last four and a half years, we've had a number, dozens of people actually go through what we call huddles here in the congregation. And it's, um, these huddles are simply some small, small gatherings, about eight people who commit for a period of about six months to come together and go deep into the things of God. And in order to be able to go deep into the things of God, you have to go deep into your heart. You can't get to know God in depth and not get to know you in depth. Well, one of the things that we realized early on is that people, right, the different participants in these huddles, their spiritual grammar when it came to sin was quite deficient. 
Their spiritual grammar when it came to their own sin was quite deficient. People would be sharing, right, like the background and history of some of where they came from, some of their story. And they would say things like, well, after high school, when I got to college, I kind of didn't really make God a priority. I made some mistakes. And, you know, I kind of started partying hard. That's the kind of language that they they would use, right? People wouldn't really say, after high school, when I went to college, I broke faithfulness with God. I gave myself over to all kinds of sinful behavior, sexual, sensual, debauch. People don't talk like that. We just talk about kind of like making, well, I made some mistakes. But that's not how David talks here. I mean, he begins and he says, my sin, my transgressions, my iniquities. Listen to how the church father Augustine in the fourth century, how he talks about his own sin in the book Confessions. He has hundreds of statements like the one I'm going to read to you. This is how he describes his life before he came to Christ. He was 20-ish years old when he talks about this. But here how he, how he describes himself. He says, publicly, I was a teacher of the arts, which they call liberal. Privately, I professed a false religion. In the former role, arrogant. In the latter, superstitious. In everything, vain. Do you see the clarity that Augustine has about himself? He looks at his life before he came to Christ and he says, yes, I was a teacher and I was doing really well. He was very bright, Uh, but I was arrogant about that. I was arrogant about this teaching role I had. And I had this false religion that I practiced, but I was so superstitious. And in everything about my life, I was vain. Do you see that ownership of his own sin? What we say in our culture, we say, hey, no one is perfect. We all make mistakes. That's as far as we go in admitting wrongdoing. And there's no freedom in that. You see, the reason this matters is that without knowing and owning your own sin, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will make no sense. So David knows his sin well, but there's something else that he knows perhaps even better, and that's the mercy and steadfast love of God. That's how he begins the psalm, right? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The Hebrew word is hesed. And it's one of the most important words, one of the most important attributes of God that you can learn from scripture. Hesed, God's hesed. Sometimes it's translated as his loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated as his steadfast love. But you need to know it because it's gonna change your life. When I was 18 years old, I became a Christian. And there was a thought that occurred to me often back then that was fascinating to me. And here was the thought. My thought was, I wonder what I'm going to be like when I've walked with the Lord 10 years and then 20 years and then 30 years. I was so excited to see what would happen because pretty much overnight, some radical changes came to my life. And so I was like, man, if I continue at that kind of pace, I'm going to be amazing. And I'm happy to report after 26 years of walking with the Lord that yes, the change has been incredible. I've gone from glory to glory to glory, from height to height to height. No, that's not what's happened. The change has been slow, really slow sometimes. Ask my wife, sorry to disappoint. Yes, yes, that's right. But here's what has happened. I thought that I would have this spectacular kind of change, but something else happened. Something else changed. God. God did. God 
changed in my perception. Do you understand the significance of this? This is a Copernican revolution. From my 18 year old self looking forward, looking into the future, I thought I'd be blown away by the person I became, but now I am in the future. From the vantage point of my 18 year old self and what I'm blown away by is God, who God is. Now, of course, God hasn't changed one iota. What's changed is my perception, my understanding, my wisdom of who God, about who God is. And the number one thing that by far has blown me away the most in these 25, six years of walking with him is God's hesed, God's loving kindness, God's steadfast love. God is kind. Yes? God is kind, and I've seen him be so kind to me again and again and again in my life. I've seen his kindness to me in giving me my wife, who's so devoted to him and to me. I've seen his kindness in my children and who they are in my life. I've seen his kindness in my job. I've seen his kindness in how he corrects me. And boy, have I need a correction. But he hugs me when he corrects me. He holds me tight. No social distancing for God. No six feet apart. And as he holds me tight, his affection, his hesed, has a melting effect on my callous heart. Have you experienced this? As I've counseled hundreds of people through the years, one of the ways that I've come to discern whether someone, whether their conversion is only skin deep or whether God and God's transforming grace has gone down deep into their hearts. It's this. Do they grasp God's kindness? Do they grasp his steadfast love? Because if you do, you're going to be a different person. You're going to be a changed person. David knew his sin well. Which is why he appeals, he pleads God's mercy because he knows God is kind. What good is it? to go to someone, to appeal to someone that you know is a jerk, that you know will not listen, that you know is cold and unmoved. Doesn't matter what's happening to you. They're not gonna help you. They're not gonna hear you. What good is that? The reason God is so amazing is because he is kind, because we sin, we transgress, we have iniquity, but we can come to God because he has said, Loving kindness, unbelievable it will transform you. So David goes on, verse four. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David took a woman from his kingdom, someone else's wife as his own. He then gave orders to have her husband killed, one of his most loyal generals. Clearly his sins against humanity were great. And yet David knew that before he sinned against any human being, he has sinned against God. His violence and abuse of Uriah against Uriah, against Bathsheba, were first a belittling, a defiance of God. God had made them. God owned them. They belonged to God and David took them as property. God had said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. And so David, when he realizes, when Nathan comes and convicts him of his sin, the weight of his sin is crushing. 
Except that the main metaphor that he employs here is not that of a crushing weight, but of a dark, defiling stain. The stain of sin is something that nothing can take away except God. Only God can do this. And David knows that, which is why he appeals to God. And he starts begging for inner transformation. Beg God for inner transformation. That's the second thing, children, if you're taking notes. Look at verse 7. This is what David begins to do. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. People today think that we can get rid of shame simply by erasing the word shame from our vocabulary. Now, what is shame? Shame is that searing, painful feeling that I have when I've done something dishonorable, something immoral, something dirty. But our culture is so backwards that the concept of shame itself is now what's dirty. It's a dirty word. You hear people often say, don't make that child feel shame. Don't make that person feel shame. But what if they've done something shameful? Jeremiah 6 says, they know not at all. They've forgotten how to be, how to blush. They do not, they're not ashamed at all. They've forgotten how to blush. We've forgotten how to blush. We don't do it. We don't know how to do it. And you see, this is the very thing that happens because we do not deal with shame in a biblical way, way, then shame never goes away because shame is not a social construct. Shame is not something that we can just get together and decide, you know what, this whole thing about shame, uh, let's get rid of it. We don't believe in it. It doesn't work like that. Now, the things that a culture will consider shameful, that will vary from place to place, time, and all of that. But shame itself doesn't just go away because shame comes into the human heart anytime we break God's law. It's written within creation. It's written in how God has made us. And so we can't just do away with it. And what happens is that people live with this deep-seated shame. I have. Rather than have God deal with it and help us get rid of it in the way that he alone can. That's what David does in this next section of the psalm. He's pleading with God to cleanse him because he knows God alone can do this. He asks God to do 12 things for him. Just in these verses with, from verse 7 on, look what he says. He says, purge me, wash me, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David asked God to do these 12 things for him because he knows that the transformation he longs for can only come from God. And so he's asking God to wash him clean, 
to forgive him, to make him whole, and to sustain him by his Holy Spirit in holiness and righteousness. That's what he asks. That's what he wants from God. You know, I've read this psalm for years now. I know it well. I want to know it better. I love it. I love that line. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Don't you love that? Create you. You, God, create in me a clean heart. Years ago when God was doing a deep work in me, this psalm was my medicine. And it gave me so much hope to know that all this sin that I was being convicted of, all the gunk that I was seeing could be blotted out, could be washed away, and not by me frantically scrubbing like a person who has stained their white evening gown or tuxedo. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because oftentimes that's how we battle against sin. Think about your sin, whatever that may be. You watch pornography. You smugly judge others. You delight and trust in your bank balance. You rage against your spouse. You feel no urgency to spray the message, spread the message of God, uh, of Christ, and make disciples, whatever that may be for you. When we become convicted of our actions, what we start doing is we start frantically scrubbing. I gotta do better. I gotta try harder. This stain will not come off. Listen, we can scrub until we're raw. The stain will never go away. Can't. Only God can take it away. Only God can wash us clean. So this is why David is begging God, cleanse me, purge me, wash me, create in me a clean heart. Do you beg God for inner transformation? Do you beg him? Do you sin and run to God? Because we're going to sin, you guys. And I think part of what the devil, the lie that we begin... We believe is that, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to not sin. But we're going to sin. First John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. We need to know. We need this psalm. This psalm is here and many others as helps to us because we do sin. And what happens is when you sin, when you fall, do you run to God in shame, in brokenness, in desperation? Or do you run away from him? And begin to hide, hide, hide your sin, hide yourself, thinking that you can cover it up from God. Please hear me. Cleansing and joy come through confession. Cleansing and joy come through confession. On the other side of confession, confession, we will find cleansing. We will find purifying. We will find joy from God. Not from scrubbing, from God. And you'll have a new song and a new purpose in your life. And you'll be able to celebrate God's salvation. And so celebrate God's salvation. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do you see, when we experience God's forgiveness, God's reconciliation, his cleansing, we are going to have a new purpose. David says, then, do you see that? Then I will teach transgressors your ways. He says, God, when I feel the joy of your salvation one more time, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to go to people who don't know you and tell them about you, and they're going to turn to you. You see, our compulsion to tell others about Christ comes not from duty in that case, but from 
deliverance, from salvation, from tasting that the Lord is good. When you taste that God is good, you're not going to be able to help it, but open your mouth in praise. You're going to praise him. You're going to have a new song on your lips. But I want you to see the ark of confession. I want you to see where it goes. You fall, you sin. We all do. But then you humble yourself before God and you confess your sin. You don't try to hide it. You confess it and you come to him because you know his said, his loving kindness, his steadfast love. And you ask him to forgive you, to reconcile you back to him. And God comes and he cleanses you and he washes you clean and he creates in you a new heart, a clean heart. And he then sends you out singing, singing. Not ashamed, not scrubbing, not blushing, singing. So we go from sinning to singing. That's what he does. That's what confession, but you will not get to singing without confession, without coming to God by the way of Christ, by the blood of Christ, and being transparent with God rather than hiding or minimizing or denying your sin. And so this is what we do when we come together on Sundays. We sit under God's word and we confess our sin. We confess that we've seen more of God's glory than we've lived up to. But we also receive his washing. We receive his acceptance of us in Christ. And we go out with a new conviction, with a cleansed heart, with new purpose. Do you see? This is what we come to do. So here's the question. Where in the service do we confess our sins? If confession is a part of what we come to do when we gather together, when in the service does that happen? And the answer is throughout. It happens throughout. We confess as we sing. Take, for example, some of the songs that we sang this morning. That first song, Grace is on our side. We sang that, right? Your grace is on our side. The, the majority of the song is about that, how God's grace is on our side. But there were a couple of lines we sang. One said, from battle to blessing, we go in Jesus' name. We sang, whatever comes our way, God, be lifted high. Those words are great opportunities for confession. Because if you think about it, if we're honest about it, it's much easier for us to go in Jesus' name when blessings come. When battle comes, though, when hardship comes, uh, we're more tempted sometimes to curse Jesus' name, to distance ourselves from Jesus' name. And so those words become a confession that as we say them, we're like, uh, that hasn't really been true about me this week. God, let me confess this to you. Whatever comes my way, God be lifted high. That's an opportunity for confession because if we are honest no, when injury comes, when hardship comes, when there's something we've been asking God for and it hasn't come, you know what? We feel justified in our drinking or doing drugs or having sex outside of marriage or looking at vile things or living for the things of this world. We feel justified in it because you know what, God? It's been hard. There's been a battle. I've been talking to you. You haven't done what I've asked you for. So honestly, whatever comes my way, no, I don't feel like lifting high the name of God. Do you see? And so those very words that we sing, and I'm just taking two lines, become an opportunity for us to confess that, no, don't be a liar. Don't sing things and be like, oh, no, that's not me at all. Confess it as you sing it. Do you see? It's such a help because lyrics start putting on, uh, on, our, on the tip of our tongues things that we would not say 
naturally. So we confess as we sing. We also confess as we pray, as we do prayers together. The prayer that Anna prayed earlier, when I pray, I confess our sin corporately. We come, we confess together that we have now loved God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. So we confess as we pray. We also confess as we receive the word preached. You should see the sermon as a 30, 35-minute surgery from God's Spirit directly to you. This is something, this is a surgery that God is doing. Removing the cancer that has covered your heart, our heart, in ways that God can only see and reach. There are parts of us, for all of us, that are hidden. They're hidden from anyone else. They're even hidden from us many times. And only God, by His Spirit within you, can reach those secret places and transform you. So that's how we should see this sermon, as the surgery of sin being rooted out as the Word confronts us. I mean, God speaks to me during preaching. He deals with me. He does it when I'm preparing to preach. He does it while I'm preaching, which is pretty intense because I'm talking to you and God's talking to me. So I'm like, ouch, okay, that hurts, but I can't stop talking. I have to keep going, right? And he does it because he's so faithful. He doesn't leave me out just because I'm up here. He doesn't leave you out, especially when we come and we sit under his word with faith, with humility. And we also confess as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we take the bread next week, the bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood shed for us, we confess in that act, we remember that the Son of God had to die. He had to be killed for us because sin is that intense of an issue. It's not just that we make mistakes, you guys. Oh, no one's perfect. We all make mistakes. Yes, but you can't just leave it there. Sin goes so deep. It's so ingrained it's so defiling, so pervasive. It takes over all of us, our thinking, our willing, our feeling, our doing. So much, so intense that God, the Son, had to die for us. And so as we take the communion, we meditate on this. We meditate on our sin, but we also meditate on his sacrifice for us. So sublime, so perfect, so sufficient. This is what happens. For these reasons and many others, we come on Sundays together. We gather as the church. This is why our assembly is required. Because we come and we confess our sins before the Lord. And we know that cleansing and joy come through confession. Let's read the last words. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In verse 16, David says, you will not delight in sacrifices. In verse 19, he says, then will you delight in the right sacrifices. So which one is it? Does God delight in sacrifice or not? Yes and no. 
God didn't delight in animal sacrifices and external sacrifices that were brought to him without confession, without repentance. So if David had brought a bull while he was still hiding his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, that bull, that sacrifice would have been worthless. It would have been less than worthless, repugnant in the sight of God. Why? Because sacrifice begins with a broken and contrite heart. That's what he says to us in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He will not despise. That's where it begins. This is what God was training into Israel for generation after generation with the animal sacrificial system. That you could not approach a holy God who was perfect and sublime with no error, with no impurity. That we defiled impure people cannot come to him without a mediator. And so he gave them the sacrificial system to teach them. That sin is costly because you see the animal sacrifice was David's confession, was the penitent's confession that they agreed that sin is costly and that another living being had to die to make payment for it and bring reconciliation. That's what the whole system did. God trained that into Israel for generations. And yet we know from the prophets that again and again, the Israelites offer these sacrifices without brokenness. And we know from the letter to the Hebrews that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the whole sacrificial, the animal sacrificial system was merely a shadow. The reality was coming when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come and would go outside the city gates of Jerusalem and get on that cross and die for our sins, that's the reality. Yes, Hebrews 13, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Jesus came to suffer for us, to wash us clean by his blood, to create in us a pure heart that we cannot give to ourselves through scrubbing and thinking that we can go clean by effort. It's only in his blood he endures shame. He bore the reproach that should have come to us. He was made to suffer shame. He was exposed. He had blood and spit and dirt all over his face, all over his body, which was pure and undefiled. Not one sin ever had touched him. And yet he was made an, a spectacle of so that we could be clean, so that we would not have to hide, so that we could come to God and be made whole. By his stripes, we are healed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he had those stripes, that he was flogged, that he was nailed, that he was killed, that those wounds actually came into his physical body? Do you believe this? And do you believe equally in the healing that comes from those stripes? If you carry around shame, if you hide your sin because you feel just bad and guilty, 
then you're not coming to Christ. Then his death was for naught in your life. There is freedom in Christ. Free, free. We are eternally free, but we must learn to sin. I'm not telling you to go sin. I'm just saying we must learn to know that we will sin. And when we sin, we must be able to run to God, run to him in our shame and our brokenness. Don't run away from him, please. Why? Let our lives now be about offering a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do you acknowledge his name out there in the world? Do you acknowledge his name by the way you live? Let me leave you with this. Be done hiding your sin. Hide instead in Jesus Christ. Hide in him who loves you and holds you fast. He will cover your sin. He's done it by his blood. And he will send you out singing. Not ashamed, not scrubbing, not blushing, singing, singing, singing. So let's pray. And let's sing to our Savior. Father, we love you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for these words that David pained under great, penned under great pain of his sin. As he was convicted of what he'd done, horrible things against humans, humanity. But even worse than that, against you, God. You and you only. And yet they are here for our good. They are here for our sanctification and edification. They are here to create faith in us and to teach us how to deal with our sin, God. Lord, I wish I could say, oh, I'm done with sinning. But that's not the case. And so my alternatives are to hide it or deny it or minimize it. Or I can confess it. I can bring it to you, God. I can live an open life, an honest life with those around me who know me best and love me. And I can know that in Christ, all of that sin is paid for. All of that sin is atoned for. So I don't have to carry it anymore. Not its shame, not its guilt, not its destructive, corrosive power. Father, I pray for anyone who may be here, who may be listening to this, who's never come to you and asked you to cleanse them, asked you to create in them a clean heart by the blood of Christ. And so, Father, for them, I pray that today would be the day, that today would be the day when they finally bow down before you, Lord, and are done, are done trying to scrub themselves clean. Please, Father, save them. Please, Father, sustain them. Sustain us all and show us that cleansing and joy come through confession. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.